Today on the Vine Church Podcast, we have my friend Jonathan Dotson, and Jonathan is a pastor in Austin, Texas, an Acts 29 pastor, and uh, he and I have um, kind of run parallel of sorts. We're about the same age, and we've been in the network uh, probably about the same time. I think he's been in the network uh, a few years more than myself, but Jonathan is a prolific author. He's a great pastor, uh, husband, and dad. And he's come out with a book uh, called Gospel Centered Discipleship, and it came out a few years ago, but most recently they've come out with a second edition. And uh, this really caught my eye for those that are listening from the Vine because we want to continually be reevaluating and um, just thinking through how do we do discipleship at our church. It's in our mission statement that we want to make disciples and plant churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. But sometimes we can get into autopilot and just kind of not be thoughtful and reflective about how we're actually trying to go about making disciples through our local church. And so it's a pleasure to have you, Jonathan, on the podcast to help us uh, think more clearly about these things. So welcome. Thank you, Zach. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for your leadership and your faith and your church there in Madison. I know we have a similar context. Austin and Madison have some similarities. Uh, so good to be with you. Yeah, man. So um, I'm, I'm starting a new tradition with you. You're the first one. But uh, with our podcast guests, I want to start with what I call the fast five. And these are just <laughs> going to be some rapid fire questions, just basically so that we can get to know you better. Are you game for that? Yeah, I'm game. All right, man. Here's one of my favorite questions that I love to ask almost anybody just to get to know them. First question of the Fast Five is your 13-year-old self has to get a tattoo. What would the tattoo be of your 13-year-old self? What, what, what tattoo would you get if you had to get a tattoo? It'd probably be a Christian Hasoy a hammerhead skateboard or something or Hasoy or something like that. A what? I'm not sure I know what that is. Christian Hasoy was one of the big skaters uh, in the, the 80s, 90s, around the time of the Bones Brigade, Tony Hawk, all those guys. Okay. And uh, he, he had a deck that was in the shape of a hammerhead shark. And uh, so um, uh, he was, I had that skate deck and I had my slime ball wheels and independent trucks. Yes. And Christian Hasoy was, was a hero. Okay. For all my, all my street skating. So you were a skater punk. Well, uh, probably more skater, less punk. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right, number two, uh, you've got $10,000 to go anywhere on vacation with your wife, anywhere in the world for a week. Where are you going and why? The Maldives, because I've never been there. It looks breathtakingly beautiful, and um, I've got the best company in the world. Nice. I have to apologize and say, I don't even know where that is. Where is that? I don't know. It's somewhere in the Caribbean. I think. Okay. <laughs> it's uh, It just looks beautiful. All right. Actually, it's not Caribbean, but anyway. Okay. So number three, you can't say Jesus. Uh, three historical figures that you'd love to have lunch with. Mm, St. Irenaeus. Um, and any historical figure? Yep. yep. Oh, gosh. Um, 
I'm sure Plato would be very interesting. <laughs> Plato, Plato, St. Irenaeus, and um, uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Love it. Love it. Uh, number four, what's one book that you find yourself recommending more than any other? Or if that doesn't really apply, let me change it. Like if you, if you had to recommend one book, not that you have to have had done that, but let's just say there's one book that you're going to recommend to everybody at your church that they read. What, what is that besides the Bible? Uh, right now, I would say The Glory of Christ by John Owen. All right. We talked about John Owen in our uh, podcast two episodes ago with uh, Kelly, oh, good. Kelly Capic. Okay, great. Sure, that was very rich. Yeah, his new book is phenomenal. I'd recommend it to you. Uh, last question. What Bible verse do you find yourself returning to most often? Uh, most often. I mean, there are different verses for different seasons. Yep. So most recently it would be Lamentations 3. The Lord does good to those who wait for him. He is good to those who sit quietly mm. and wait for him. Mm. I love that. I love that. Well, dude, thanks for uh, enduring the fast five. And it does help us get to <laughs> hey, know you. Wasn't too bumpy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, man, let's talk about your book, Gospel Center Discipleship, um, the second edition. Help us understand, Jonathan, like what gospel-centered discipleship is, and in contrast, what it isn't. Okay. Yeah, it's clunky gospel-centered discipleship. There's too many words. Do you put the hyphen in there? What do you capitalize? But I think it's worth keeping all together because of the uniqueness and the um, focus of the phrase. So if you're not a gospel-centered disciple, then you're going to have something else at the center of your following after Jesus, right? Uh, something fills the vacuum of the, uh, at the center of gravity in our discipleship. It may be, you know, theological influences or heroes. It may be personalities. It may be a church methodology. It may be our moral performance. It may be our libertarian tendencies or our, our liberties. Uh, but something is going to kind of drive your moral and spiritual decision-making. So gospel-centered discipleship clearly is trying to keep the good news at the center of your following after Jesus, not a political uh, position, not a moral performance, um, <clears throat> but but Jesus and Jesus Christ is Lord. So, um, you know, Maybe one way to think about it is in terms of what's called the Great Commission, Matthew 28. I, 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 take, um, I take odds with it being described as the Great Commission. Um, often preachers will get up and they will preach the Great Commission and say, go make disciples. And we're all kind of riled up to go make disciples. And uh, a lot of times that falls on deaf ears. People might try it for a season, but not continue. People might feel guilty because they haven't made disciples. Mm -hmm. For them, that might mean I didn't go to the nations. I didn't go cross-culturally. I didn't, I didn't go to the two-thirds world. Therefore, I'm inadequate. 
It might mean that they haven't spiritually reproduced themselves in another person, and therefore they're, they're kind of a B team. They're kind of an inferior Christian. And so the Great Commission becomes a great bludgeon upon everyday Christians. Hmm. But as I look at Matthew 28, I don't see a Great Commission. I see a Gospel Commission. The emphasis, although the imperative is to make disciples, the imperative is surrounded by gospel graces and gospel motivations. So how do you make disciples? Well, you, you go, you're sent, yep. you teach, and you baptize. Mm-hmm. You, you, you go, you teach, you baptize. And, in, and what, upon what grounds do we go? Well, right before that, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. So we go not in our own wisdom, not in our political brand, not in our, you know, performance in global missions, not in our theological acumen, not in our experience in handing out wisdom to people. We go in the authority, not of our experience, not of our theology, but in the authority of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, that's a gospel motivation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you look closely at the three things that describe making disciples, they're all motivated by the gospel. So we baptize in Jesus' name into the divine community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Yep. And we teach all that Jesus has commanded, including the gospel. And then we're promised that he will be with us always, even in the age. So in Jesus' mind, discipleship is gospel-oriented, gospel-motivated, and gospel-saturated. Yeah. <laughs> and discipleship happens to be the byproduct. <laughs> yep. So... You know, I think a lot of us get it backwards. We've come at it not through the gospel, we come to discipleship, trying to perform in all these different ways. And on a good day, hey, that's great. We feel great about ourselves. And then we become self-inflated. On a bad day, we feel bad about ourselves and we're crushed. So it makes a real difference at your own kind of personal, experiential Christianity, your life with Christ, how you approach discipleship. Yes, so what you're saying is if I have the gospel in my daily vision, it's kind of the the sun in my solar system. Um, it's at the center of everything. Um, the, the Great Commission is going to flow naturally out of that meditation and that awareness that the gospel is just front and center at all times. Is that what you're saying? Uh, I mean, you're going to have to fight for it, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a daily fight of, of belief and, and, and faith and intentionality, right? But Yeah, yeah. As opposed to just trying to like gut it out and, and will it, like just try harder to make disciples, you know? Yeah. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, that's a fair way to summarize it. Yeah, that's good. Because um, I think that's really, really helpful. I, I really resonate with what you're saying about it being... Um, a bludgeon for people sometimes. And I felt that in my Christian experience, you know? Um, So I I really appreciate that. And and for any, any teachers or small group leaders or preachers, they're listening. The reason for that is because when people stand up and teach Matthew 18 and they put the accent on make disciples, they're preaching to the will. Yeah. But when you put the accent where Jesus really has put the accent, his authority, his presence, his name, his right. teachings, then you're preaching to the heart. Yes. 
Jesus enters the heart, motivates the heart, rehabilitates the heart, comforts the heart with his presence, empowers it with his authority. And that makes the difference in your teaching of that text. Yeah. If you're preaching it in a gospel-centered way, as opposed to a will-centered yes. way. As we're talking even right now, I'm thinking about, um, you know, is this about me or is this about Jesus? And and there is me in there. Like I'm I'm called to go. I'm called to teach. I'm called to baptize. But the all authorities in heaven and earth has been given to me. Like that's a massive claim that like I kind of submit myself underneath, where it really feels good to be in that posture under His authority, as opposed to I'm trying to go in my own authority, or the power of my own presence. Well, like here, here I am out here sharing the gospels, trying to, trying to make disciples and I'm all by myself. It's like, Nope, you're not, you know? And even as we're talking, I'm, I'm finding my heart being encouraged by just that reemphasis. If I just were to focus more on his authority and his presence, it makes me just feel a little lighter as I think about (laughs) making disciples. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, um, his authority frees you to fail and it keeps you humble when you succeed because if it's, it's his authority and you fail, well then actually it's all according to his plan. And you may actually not have failed as you thought you did. Right. You can trust his authority. If you succeed, well, it's because he, he's the one that changes the hearts of men. (laughs) So it's a good place to be. It's very freeing. It's very, the pressure's off. You just going to get to walk with the presence of Jesus under the authority of Jesus and be intentional with your life. Yeah. Amen. I love that. I love that. So if somebody were to ask you, and maybe this question is too open-ended, but I'm just curious if you have um, something you would say. Um, if someone were to ask you, Jonathan, like, what's the goal of discipleship? What, what would you say? Is it, is it the things we've been already talking about, or is there a, more of a succinct way that you think about it? Yeah, I, I mean, the most succinct way that I can think of is 2 Corinthians 3. That we are, conf- or Romans eight, that we're conformed to the image of Christ. Yeah, you know, um, and and we often quote Romans eight in the context of suffering. Right. So you know, all things work together for good for those who love God and according to His purpose. And so we just say, okay, God's sovereign, I can make it through it. Or God's good, which is even better. He's not only sovereign, but He's good. But then the question is, well, how is He good? And I think we often lose sight of where that text keeps going. And it is that we've been conformed to the image of the son. Right. So ordinary life and suffering life are intended to conform us to the image and beauty of Jesus. Yeah. And that's good because not only does it produce ethical beauty in us, but it draws us to the most significant, powerful, gracious being in the universe. Yes. The son of God. So um, I, I don't, I can't think of a higher purpose or goal than to be conformed to the image of the son of God, the, you know, the, the zenith of humanity, the one true human who has lived flawlessly and beautifully in every way to get to cozy up to him is, is the, is the grace of all graces. Yep. Amen. I mean, I love that vision. Yeah. To, to be conformed to who Jesus is. Love it. So in your book, Jonathan, you talk a lot about, in various places, um, the twin dangers of legalism and license when mm. it comes to our discipleship. 
Can you just unpack that for someone who might be new to those terms or those categories? Yeah, legalism and license. So um, both of legalism and license are rule-centered, not gospel-centered. What do I mean? Well, a legalist is centered on keeping the holy rules of God or the rules of the Bible or the rules of Christianity. The um, person who is, is more liberal or takes more license is more concerned with breaking the rules. Uh, you know, the rules don't apply to me or bending the rules. They're more concerned with their own personal individual freedom from holy rules. And the legalist is more concerned with keeping uh, and obeying the rules. But both of them are performing. They're both responding to a rule. The rule is at the center of their character and identity formation, not Christ. So it is impersonal. um, And therefore, uh, the legalist, when we were talking about this a little bit before, but when a legalist is is doing well, the rule keeping, they'll feel quite good about themselves. If I've, I've had my quiet time, if I've prayed regularly, if I've shared the gospel, if I haven't fallen into any noticeable sins, well, then I might think I'm a pretty good Christian, and I take comfort in that. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, the, the, the problem of that, with it, of course, is that it, it fills you with, with pride and self-righteousness, and so you begin to make disciples out of your own image. You need to do a quiet time like me. You need to pray like this. You need to do, you know, and you become merciless to those who don't keep your standard of right. holiness or spiritual performance. Um, the flip side, of course, is when we all have a bad day or a rough patch and we actually can't keep the rules. Well, then our self-worth plummets. You know, I, I haven't kept my quiet time. I haven't prayed as much as I, I haven't shared the gospel with anyone in months. And so you just, you're, you're weighed down by guilt. And, uh, so, and all of this is because your whole sense of identity is defined by rules. Uh, the, 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 uh, the, the licentious person that does the same thing, they bend away, they seek satisfaction and freedom from rules, and they end up paying perhaps a moral price in certain compromise, morally compromised decisions. They drift further away from true meaning, true satisfaction. Um, <clears throat> you know, so both both are responding to, to rules. Mm-hmm. And Jesus comes along and he doesn't say, there are no rules. <laughs> right. That, that's what the left would say. Uh, what Jesus does is he keeps the holy rules of God on our behalf and says, follow me. Trust in me when you fail. Trust in me when you succeed. Make me the object and center of your discipleship. So that, that is the kind of two pitfalls, you know, that, that, that we, you mentioned. And um, Jesus is better than rules. Yeah. So that's really, really helpful. Where do you personally find that your heart can can lean? And can you paint a picture of that? Or even from your past? Oh, sure. Um, I tend to lean to, you know, there's been seasons in my life, but I'd, I'd say my more adult years, I've leaned, leaned towards the right to, to spiritual performance. Um. At one way that it would manifest for me is, you know, I've, I've got a work week and I'm getting towards the end of the work week. And I think to myself as Friday and Saturday approach, 
have I done enough to warrant a movie tonight? Yeah. Have, have I done enough to go for a hike on Saturday? You know, and I, so I look back over my week and I evaluate my performance. Mm-hmm. I'm working for my rest. But the gospel inverts that, reverses it and says, no, you have rest in Christ. You come to me all you weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest is in Christ. You work from your rest. You don't work to gain rest. Mm-hmm. So my enjoyment of leisure when I'm acting like a legalist is earned. Mm-hmm. And therefore, when I watch that movie, I go on that hike, it's less enjoyable because it's not actually giving me rest. It's earned leisure. It's supplanting the rest of Christ. But actually, when I am repenting my way into that or just simply enjoying the rest of Christ, the hike becomes much, much more worshipful. The movie, I become more theologically reflective. And it doesn't have to deliver, the movie or the hike doesn't have to deliver consummate rest because I already have it. Yeah. Or I already have it. I don't have to get it. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> you know, I might have to work extra that weekend, but it's okay because I'm enjoying rest in Christ. Right. Yeah, I feel like in my experience, I and mean, we're about the same age, uh, I feel like in my experience in ministry in the last couple decades is that it seems like most Christians that I have come in contact with probably lean more toward the legalist than the license. Do you think that's true in your experience too? Uh, in stage of life? No, uh, just just in church, in church in general, just believers, Christians in general. Oh man, I, I mean in Austin, I feel like the church is about 15 years old. I'd say for about 12 years of it, it was all left. Not all left, but but tilted left. Mostly license. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, uh, politically, ethically, um, interpretively of the scriptures, um, you know, gender, uh, sexuality, um, those kind of things. So there was a lot of kind of left rule bending kind of thing. Mm. Um but there's there's plenty of right to go around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of joke sometimes that I I'm, I came to Austin to plant a church because I prefer to pastor liberal sin than than religious sin. Sure. So, yeah. and it's been true in my experience. That's interesting. Yeah, I guess my experience has just been different. Um, in my 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 sense is like people. I don't know if if you're for better or for worse sometimes people gravitate toward the church because they want some type of a structure and mm-hmm. and the, the, they find comfort in the structure and there's a there's a perceived sense of comfort in rule keeping that's mm-hmm. really easy mm-hmm. to that's really easy to to fall into when you're not you're not even really aware that you're doing it at times mm-hmm. you know um but I, I feel like that's what I've observed in just, but I mean, we're in different contexts and different churches over the last, I've been mainly in the Midwest in the last 25 years, but yeah, it's just interesting to reflect on. Um, and it's good for our people to, to reflect on those categories of license and, and, um, and legalism and those twin ditches. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. You can be both. Like it, it's yeah, not like for sure. you can only, and maybe in the same day you know, uh, or hour. Uh, so, you know, Satan's not, not, not too concerned as long as you take a right or a left and don't say centered on Christ. He's, he's pretty happy. Right. 
Right. You yeah. know, and, and I, I find uh, people who, who really are kind of secularized here in Austin, when they get around Christianity, even though they have a liberal ethic, they actually have an interreligious impulse. So I was discipling this guy who was like, a, he was agnostic, um, theater background, and um, not, not really involved in Christianity. When he eventually started coming to our church, uh, he would describe his, his faith as climbing the spiritual ladder. Mm. But he was totally not into rules in life. He was totally not into, you know, so I, I think all of us have pride. Yeah. And pride attaches itself sometimes to breaking the rules and sometimes to keeping the rules. <laughs> yeah. Yep, it's true. It's really, really true. Well, let me um, switch gears to a, another chapter in your book, and that has to do with the role of the Holy Spirit in discipleship. And I was raised in a church that theologically, through the creeds, affirmed the Holy Spirit, but mm-hmm. I can't ever remember it coming up much at all and having anything to do with my daily life. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's maybe some of the tragedy of, um, for me, it's mainly white Protestant circles in, in my childhood and in my adult life that we forget about the Holy Spirit. And I, I know in your book, you, you referenced the title of Francis Chan's book, The Forgotten God. Mm-hmm. But just unpack for us a little bit, Jonathan, like what, what is the role? What does the Bible say about the role of the Holy Spirit in our discipleship? And why do we neglect the Holy Spirit to our detriment? Um, perhaps one good way to think about it was if you had a choice between Jesus the Father and the Holy Spirit to be your personal discipler, who would you pick? Uh, many of us would pick Jesus. I mean, he is the disciple maker. He is the master discipler. And yet, if we picked Jesus, we'd have be powerless to do what he commanded, to imitate his example. And so Jesus says, it's better that I go, that I might send you the helper, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside you. And he actually says, guides us into the truth. Right. Without the spirit, we stay on top of the truth. We analyze the truth. We break down the truth. We can memorize the truth. But it's only the spirit of God that takes us into the truth. That is to swim in it, to let it shape our character, our thoughts, our feelings, our affections, our imagination. Without the spirit of God, that doesn't happen. So <clears throat> the spirit, I, I would say, is the one you want to pick to be your disciple. For that very reason, only he can take you into the truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth of Christ. So um, one of the challenges to that, of course, is that some, many of us do have this kind of stiff-armed relationship with the, the, the Holy Spirit, the, the, the red-headed stepchild of the Trinity, you know, uh, functional binatarians. We believe in the Father and the Son, but not really uh, the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And yet he's equally God, um, and he is indwelling us. And uh, he guides us into the truth. He takes us by the hand. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this is one. I wrote a whole other book on the Holy Spirit because this is so dear to my heart um, that I, I have had that experience. It was early in s- seminary where I remember falling down on my knees and crying to the Lord and say, I've really neglected the Holy Spirit, my Christian life, my whole Christian life. And would you forgive me and would you reintroduce me to who he is? And that became a turning point for me. It was a point of repentance. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that that people like us, that that is warranted. Uh, a neglect of the third person of the Godhead. Yeah. To worship him, to heed him. I mean, we pray, we, we kind of play it safe. We play it controlled. And a lot of that has to do with us. But the Spirit pushes the boundaries of safe and control. Amen. He prompts you to share the gospel when you're, un- when you're uncomfortable. He prompts you towards holiness when everyone else is doing unholy things. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Spirit is fire. Amen. And uh, so we, we probably need to repent <laughs> of neglecting the third person of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. And, of course, God is gracious and kind and forgives us. And then invite a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5, to animate our obedience, to animate our communion with God, to uh, take us into the truth. Not just to have a quiet time, but to have communion with God. Yeah. You know, and uh, St. Corinthians 15 talks about this, that, you know, the baptism, the uh, Trinitarian formula is that, that we would have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Um, communion with the third person of the Trinity. So, it, it, it's not just a doctrine to affirm. He's a person to worship. He, he's not just someone to, re, to rely on. He's someone to adore, to heed. So, um, yeah, I mean, I just feel so strongly about the Holy Spirit, and yet I, you know, quench him uh, every day. I'm certain of it. But uh, I have found a liveliness in communion with God by coming back to the Spirit. On my good days, I'm sensitive to prompts of the Spirit, mm-hmm. to say an encouraging word, mm-hmm. to pray on the spot. All of this divides social convention. Yeah. But what would, it ha- what would a church look like that defied social convention and instead followed the Holy Spirit? Man, there'd be a person praying over here, a person praying over here, a person encouraging over there, a person confessing sins over I mean, it would be lively. Yeah. It would be fiery. Amen. 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 So, yeah. But what does it mean? Like, um, can you give more examples of like when we know that we're not quenching the spirit and we know that we're walking in the spirit in our discipleship? Uh, Examples of when we know that we are. Yeah. Like, I think some people might say like, it's, it sounds like, I'm not sure how to do it. Like, yeah. Like, how do I, how do I walk with this? Like, um, does it mean I'm just praying? Does it mean I'm reading my Bible? Does it mean I'm, uh, like, I think people, I think people in general sometimes just struggle with knowing like what that means to, to have the spirit be involved in my discipleship as opposed to just me. Like, cause, cause it's not like you feel like this person like is I'm thinking of like a, an unbeliever or somebody who's just new to Christianity is thinking, well, I'm not like feeling somebody like indwelling me, mm-hmm. um, but I want to be submitted to what the scripture says about my experience, mm-hmm. but I don't really feel it. Like, how do I know when I'm operating in the spirit and walking in the spirit and, and not quenching the spirit? Yeah. Um, yeah. I can give some examples. So, um, one would be, uh, let's think about maybe prompts, uh, prayer, and maybe even just Bible reading. But so, so prompts, 
um, being prompted by the Spirit is mystical, mm-hmm. um, but He won't ever prompt you to do anything that the Bible uh, disagrees with. Right. So, you know, I've had people come to me and say, you know, I feel like God's really telling me to divorce my wife, and they had no biblical grounds for that. Right. Well, that wasn't, that wasn't the Holy Spirit. That right. was your flesh. Right. <laughs> you know, so, right. um, so with that caveat, I think, um, as I've looked at the scriptures, when the apostles are prompted in, in the book of Acts, I think every single time they're prompted where it says, and the Spirit spoke to Paul, the Spirit spoke to Peter, it's to do ministry. Right. So the Spirit prompted Peter to go to the house of Cornelius, who was totally countercultural. You don't go there. He's higher up the social ladder, higher up the cultural ladder. He's, you know, but, but he went against social convention, and he went and he, and he witnessed to Cornelius. And, of course, he and his household were baptized. Um, Paul was prompted um, uh, to go to a different city to right. plant a church. Um, so most of the spiritual prompts that you see in the Bible are prompts for gospel ministry. Yeah. So I, I would encourage you practically just to be open to prompts. We tend to be uh, very conservative and scared of those prompts. But if it's gospel ministry, if it's sharing the gospel, you're not going to go wrong, all right? Amen. If it's uh, speaking the encouraging word to someone, you're not going to go wrong. Amen. You know? If it's praying on the spot, yeah. you're not going to go wrong. Amen. <laughs> you know, so so listen, loosen the, the, the seatbelt a little bit. <laughs> And let's let the Holy Spirit lead us. Yeah, amen. amen. You know, so, so those would be ways to, yeah. to, you know, pray on the spot, to inc- give an encouraging word, and to do gospel ministry, hospitality, right. evangelism, you know, all those kind of things. Yeah. So that would be prompts. Um, Jude says to, that you know, we should pray in the Spirit at all times, making all prayers and supplications. Um, so praying in the Spirit, I think, include, includes the person of the Spirit. So consider praying to the Spirit, treating Him as a person, right. not a force. Right. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you help me to discern your prompts today? Yep. Holy Spirit, would you help me to be sensitive to the temptations that come my way and, and help me to resist them and trust in the promises of God? Holy Spirit, would you would you help me with this particular sin? I, I pray through kind of the sins of my season every morning. Yeah, Spirit, deliver me. Jesus says, you know, lead me not into temptation, um, and deliver me from evil. Spirit, <laughs> Romans eight says, put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. Yes, so that you will live. So in prompts, in prayer, in temptation. Um. You know, th- those are those are a few examples. Yeah, I, I love it. Had another- I love it. I, I think of two, Jonathan, just like really simple, like thinking about Galatians five and what the Bible says are the evidence of someone who is spirit filled, and mm-hmm. it's love and it's joy and it's peace and it's patience and it's kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness, self control. Mm-hmm. And and I think we can sometimes uh, be overly self reflective. But at times it's good to be self-reflective or maybe if you're married or a brother or sister or a roommate or a parent, just ask them, do you see in my life that I'm growing in these things? You mm-hmm. know, um, because the Bible says that if 
I'm a Christian. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to bear the fruit of these things in increasing mm-hmm. measure. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, that's one of the things like, I think I'm more patient than I was 20 years ago. Um, I hope so. I, I'm I think sure you so. are. I'm sure you are. <laughs> um, but I mean, um, yeah, I think there's a danger in, in being, there's certain personality types that need to be careful at how much self-reflection they do, but mm-hmm. other people, um, really can benefit. Everybody can benefit from it, but just be aware of the danger. Um, but yeah, just, just thinking about what the Bible says about the fruit of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit is the evidence of the spirit in a Christian's life. And it Absolutely. looks like character qualities, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, more often than not, the, the presence and work of the spirit is subtle, not showy. Yeah. It's subtle in prompting us to do the dishes when it's not our turn. That's mm-hmm. the spirit of God prompting you to do that. Yeah. Be a servant. That's self, self-denying Christ-like behavior. Right. Yeah, so it's the spirit. It's not your conscience. It's not. It's not your. You know, it, it is the Holy Spirit producing the the character of Christ in you. So, yeah, yielding to those kind of character prompts. Yeah, I love it. I love it. This is really helpful, Jonathan. Well, but you know, Zach, it's it's also important to recognize that is the Holy Spirit. Because if not, you'll 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 fill in the blank with, that's my my moral fiber, that's mm-hmm. my spirituality. Right. But when we say, oh, I'm going to yield to the Spirit, it's more personal, and God gets the credit. <laughs> Amen. Amen. And, it, and, and, and as a result, it can become communion. Yes. It can become communion with God as opposed yes. to my performance. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Man, there's a lot we could talk about there, but for the sake of time, <laughs> let's move on here. Um, maybe we can just close with this. I have been working with our elders and we're just trying to have some really um, honest, thoughtful conversations about what does it mean for the church to disciple people? Like, how do we actually go about doing that in terms of the structures that we have, the things that we um, directly oversee as a church? And I know every church mm-hmm. that wants to be faithful to the triune God is asking this question. Um, and the challenge is that the Bible doesn't say, go ye therefore. And when you plant a church, it has to be A, B, C, D, E. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, it's, it, we, we know principles, but what would you say about like, what has to be present when it comes to how a church is structured for the sake of making disciples? Well, I'm not, I'm not one on big, big on prescribing rules or, you know, systems uh, for churches, but, you know, principles are important. Right. Um, so principles that have to be present for discipleship in the local church. Um. Or, or, or practice, I guess, is really what your question is. I mean, there has to be some community framework. It, right. it can't be just like preach and then go do whatever you want, and then we'll see you next Sunday. Um, because that's a rational, that's a that's a that's rationally centered discipleship, or it's theology, or it's event centered. It's very it'll leave you malnourished and distorted. You know, it's just it's just it's just this one slot, or it's this one kind of thing. Um, so 
you got to have some kind of community framework. Um, we have uh, initial communities and we have well, discipleship groups. Uh, the, the way we distinguish between the two is that God picks your community, you pick your friends. Discipleship is, is about friendship, affinity, people you connect with, people you're pursuing. You pick those. And it's not an anti-Calvinist statement. It's just a practical statement. And then uh, God picks your community. In other words, you should be with people that you wouldn't pick. Yeah. You, should, you should be doing life with people that you don't like. That, that actually you have an issue with or rub you the wrong way. Right. That's good for your holiness. That's good for your faith. That's good for what do we talk about? Producing the image and likeness of Christ in us. Amen. But there, but there is a, a intimacy and a, I hesitate to use the word speed, but there's a depth that you can go to with people that you click with, people that you trust would be the more important word there, that enables discipleship to get more traction. Yeah. And both are really important. If you just do the small group people that you pick, you're going to have all these things sticking out of you that haven't been rubbed off by the complexity and challenge of community. But if you're just in a community, then you're going to you're probably going to neglect deeper issues, internal issues, and you're not giving your life away to anybody else. So I think both structures are important, whether they're formalized or informal. In some way, yeah. You need to be in a broader community and a more intimate community. Yep. So at your church, would you ask your people who are, do you guys have membership? Mm-hmm. For people's, for members of your church, do you ask them to come on Sunday and then come to a, uh, a I don't, I don't remember your terms, a, a church group? City group. Uh, yeah, we yeah. have, we call them city groups too. I think we probably copied that from you, but, um, yeah. So you ask them to go to Sunday morning, you ask them to go to city group and you ask them to be in a missional community. Uh, d- discipleship, group. discipleship group. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that, well, all these meetings are kind of, that's a lot to juggle. <laughs> right. you know, it's like, Whoa, am, am I supposed to give my life away to this stuff or what? Oh, actually you are. Yeah. <laughs> but I get it. You know, it's, there's a lot. And so we just encourage people, are you going to have lunch this week yeah. at any point? Have lunch with your discipleship group. Yeah. You're going to have coffee? Go have coffee with your discipleship group. You're going to do it anyway. Just do it with them. Is your discipleship groups smaller and are they more organic in nature, meaning, meaning people just kind of um, create them on their own and formalize them on their own, or is it more structured by the leadership? They're smaller. They're two to four. They're uh, gender-based. And the three principles are we're going to repent of sin, rejoice in Christ, and reproduce disciples. Mm-hmm. That's the goal. And they do it by reading the same passage of Scripture together and getting together every week or every other week um, and encouraging one another to repent of sin, rejoice in Christ, and reproduce disciples. We don't have sign-ups. I would never, ex- ha- I would never want someone to sign me up with friendship with another person. Sure. You pick, you pick your friends. Uh, but we encourage, so we preach about it, we talk about it, we write books about it, we yep. stimulate it. We'll have a men's retreat, a women's retreat, say, hey, you should look for someone that you click with and form a discipleship group. But we're not going to tell you who to be friends with. Yep. And then the other type of group is probably more organized in nature by the church? Yeah, it's more organized. Uh, there's training for leaders, and yep. uh, there's uh, a primer that shapes the community, and they, everyone has a say in that, how they form their community and all that stuff. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. We're doing similar things here. Um, it was just really good to hear how another church is, is doing it. But back to the original question, 
um, you were just saying like, if churches don't have an imposed structure where we're going to be relational with each other in a habitual, yeah. regular, intentional way, we're probably going to yeah. miss something. The way I talk about it is like, how do we do the one another's of the New Testament if we if we aren't in proximity to each other in a way that we're com- all committed to? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for, for middle, upper class, predominantly white churches, is really important because we don't do community naturally. Right. Hispanic and African American communities, it's part of their culture, you know, so they may need to work on other aspects of discipleship. But for us, we've got to program it or it's not going to happen. Yeah. We're highly individualistic. We love our comforts, yeah. our privacy, but we've been called to a public Lord. We've been told to sacrifice, you know, self-deny, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. So we need leaders that will willing to, to preach against our kind of cultural and uh, communal uh, impulses and kind of get us back along behind Jesus. Yeah. I love it. I love it, man. Well, Jonathan, this discussion has been really rich and um, I'm really thankful for your ministry and your leadership in, in Texas and uh, for your writing. Uh, how many books have you written, man? Uh, it's seven or eight. Seven or eight. You got one yeah. in the works? Uh, coming out August 1st, The Unwavering Pastor, Leading the Church with Grace, through divisive times. Wow. I can't imagine, you know, how you had anything to write about <laughs> <laughs> in recent days. No, no topics there to discuss. Yeah. I look forward to that brother. Um, Thank you. Anything else you want to get off your chest? Um, I, I um, I guess I might say to your church, if I could be so bold, please. It's not perfection overnight; it's progress over a lifetime. Amen. Don't be too hard on yourself. Jesus died for you. He adopted you. You're His child. Rest in that. Just keep your eyes on Him. Amen. It's not perfection overnight; progress over a lifetime. Eyes on Jesus, yep. and uh, the Lord bless you and keep you. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. Well said, Jonathan. Thank you.